Good morning, Cornerstone Church. Why don't you grab your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. And whilst you're doing that, I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to uh, be with us and to speak to us as his word is proclaimed. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I want to praise and thank you for your word. And I want to praise and thank you that your word is relevant for us today. And we ask, Lord, that as we listen to your word being preached, that you by your spirit would do a work in our hearts. And I pray, Lord, that through that work, that the gospel and the Lord Jesus will be paramount in all our hearts and all our minds, both now and for the days and months and years to come. And we pray this for his glory and for your glory. Amen. Amen. When things don't go the way you have planned or the way you would like them to go, what is your reaction? Or when things occur in your life and you can't figure out why they have happened or why they have happened in that way, how do you react? How about when you invite a friend to church or to an event or a gospel community gathering and you've plucked up the courage, you've invited them, you've asked them to come, but something happens, something stops them from coming and some, or something stops them from engaging, what is your response? What goes through your mind? Where does it leave you? In 1956, four young men, Jim Elliott, Roger Uderian, Peter Fleming and Nate Saint, made contact with the Wadani tribe which was an unreached people group in the jungles of Ecuador. After a few small encounters with, with the people on the beach, the young men set up camp just up the Karari River, which was just up from the tribe's settlement. And they were planning and they were praying and they were hoping to make further contact with this tribe. But that contact was preempted when 10 warriors from the tribe came and killed Jim Elliott and all his companions on the January the 8th, 1956. After all that planning, all that prayer, all the sacrifice of other careers for the sake of seeing this people group hear about the Lord Jesus Christ, I wonder what went through the family's mind when they heard that their husbands, their brothers, their sons, their fathers had been killed by the very tribe that they were trying to reach. I wonder if any of them thought, after all that time, the opportunity for the gospel advancement in that particular people group had gone, had finished, because these four men, young men, had been killed. It probably brought great concern for the families of those who died, and actually great concern for the people who had not heard the gospel because these guys had been killed. And folks, if the story stopped there, we would be forgiven for thinking the same. See, today we come to a part of Paul's letter where I'm sure he is writing to encourage those who had great concern for him and the gospel ministry because he was in prison. Surely this isn't the plan they must have thought. How can Paul share the gospel whilst he's in prison? How will people be saved now? See, the conditions and the situations are not what they should be. It just seems a great waste. You can imagine them just talking as they hear about Paul being put in prison. Folks, I'm sure in the midst of the care and the love for Paul, they would be panicking, 
they would be anxious, and they would be clearly discontent with the current situation. But as we will see in this part of the letter, Paul's response to his circumstances and also what he wants the church in Philippi to know is very different to what maybe we would communicate if it was us. And in seeing Paul's response, I hope and I pray that we would have the same gospel perspective as Paul and the same joy that he possesses in the midst of this circumstance. So there are four things I want us to see. First is this, that Paul has joy because of gospel advancement. I want us to see that Paul has joy because people are hearing the gospel. I want us to see that Paul has joy because people are proclaiming the gospel. And I want us to see that Paul has joy because it's about Christ's glory and not his own. First one, Paul has joy because of gospel advancement, verse 12. This is what he says. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What is it that Paul wants them to know? It's, it's not the details of what has happened to him, which could have been a number of different things. It could have been everything that occurred to him in, in Rome, the conversations that he had, the issues that he found himself in, or it could have even been everything that has happened to him since he left Jerusalem on, on his missionary journey. But what is it that Paul wants them to know? What he wants them to know is what has happened to him has served to advance the gospel. See, in verse 12, what we see is it is the advancement of the gospel that dominates Paul's thinking. It's his major concern. His concern in his circumstances is that what he can see is that the gospel is advancing and he wants his friends in Philippi to know about this. Look, I, I want you to know, he says. Why? Because they're partners in the gospel. I want you to know that the thing that we partner in is advancing and I'm full of joy to see that it is advancing even in the midst of the fact that I am in prison. I want you to see, look what God is doing. I want you to see the evidences of God's grace and I want you to find joy like I am finding joy in the midst of my situations because the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is advancing even in these circumstances that are far from being ideal. I want you to know. And I want you to know what has happened to me. Folks, what is the priority for Paul in every circumstance? The gospel. See, what we see here is Paul's reflex in his suffering. And his reflex in his suffering is to think about the gospel and not himself. And to think about the gospel by definition means that he thinks about others. So Paul's reflex in the midst of this suffering, in the midst of this opposition, in the midst of being in prison is the gospel. Therefore, his reflex is to think about others, not his own situation. And in thinking about the gospel, it brought him joy. I want you to know, Paul says, what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. The word advance means progress. Paul is saying, what has happened to me is creating opportunities to break into new ground. I'm reaching more people. I'm, I'm, I'm reaching different kinds of people. They're hearing the gospel. See, Paul had an understanding of the providence of God, how God moves his hand in the midst of time and history. And he had an understanding of the providence of God that enabled him to see that his suffering 
wasn't being wasted. That this opposition wasn't something that was stopping the advancements of the gospel, but actually this opposition was creating more opportunity for the gospel. It's interesting in verse 16, when he's talking about those who are preaching the gospel out of a love for him, he, he says that they're preaching the gospel out of a love for him because they know that he has been put there by God. Verse 16, I am put here. See, Paul has this understanding that what has happened to him comes within the midst of the sovereignty of God and God moving his hand of providence in time and, 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 and history that has given him a great opportunity to proclaim the gospel. See, Paul's understanding of God's sovereignty and his providence in his circumstance was all about the gospel. It was all about the gospel. Richard Wernbrandt was a, a, a Romanian pastor in the 1950s. An evangelical pastor that preached the gospel. And Richard Rembrandt spent 14 years in prison, three of them in solitary confinement when he was in a very small cell, which was completely dark, 24 hours a day, and it was completely silent. Even the guards that would come to him and give him maybe a little bit of food would wear felt on the bottom of their, their boots so he couldn't hear them coming. It must have been torturous. But Rembrandt was put in prison because he publicly said that communism and Christianity were incompatible, incompatible with each other. And he stood for the cause of Christ in the midst of that brutal situation. Now, whilst he was in prison, he never stopped preaching the gospel. And the, the issue was that he, if he preached the gospel, he would be beat, beaten by the gods. So him and some other friends who were Christians made a deal with the gods, and this was the deal. We'll preach the gospel, and you'll beat us. They accepted the fact that that's what it would mean for them to preach the gospel. Also, when he wasn't in sol solitary confinement, he used to communicate with the other prisoners by doing Morse code on the wall or on, on the pipes. Um, in Richard Wehrmann's, one of his books, and when you've heard him interviewed, you hear that actually he would preach the gospel through Morse code, and some of those prisoners came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Richard Wehrmann is able to say, what has happened to me? has served to advance the gospel and he wanted people to know folks many of you do know that we've had a number of years of difficulty and suffering with our daughter's health and that has been difficult it's been brutal for us it's been brutal for her in many many circumstances we've had cancelled operations we've had unexpected uh, accidents in the midst of recovery and many of you know this, but I want to share this again, folks, in the midst of that difficult situation, in the midst of that suffering, I can assure you that what has happened to us, even though we would change it, so much of it, what has happened to us has served to advance the gospel. There are people who now know Jesus because of hearing the story, seeing the story. Actually, within God's providence, more time could be spent with certain people. What has happened to us has served to advance the gospel. Folks, a couple of questions. What is your reflex when you suffer? What is your reflex? Is it self or is it the gospel? Is it a cry to God, why are you doing this? Or is it a cry to God, what are you doing in the midst of this? Folks, why don't we pray that our reflex in the midst of suffering would be the gospel. What is your reflex 
when you face opposition for Jesus. That might be in the workplace, it might be with friends, it might be with family, it might be with your spouse, it might be with your father or, or your, your mother or your children. What is your reflex? Do we see that as suffering for Christ, an, uh, uh, an opportunity for the proclamation of the gospel? Why don't we pray that our reflex will be gospel, a gospel perspective? Folks, one thing that I want us to be totally in tune with is that we never know how God may use our sufferings. Did Paul want to go to prison? Of course he didn't want to go to prison. Who wants to go to prison? Did Paul want to be chained to a guard 24-7? No, he didn't. None of us want to suffer. None of us want to, to experience the brokenness of the world, whether that's through, through pain or suffering, whether that's through opposition for following the Lord Jesus Christ. But actually to have a gospel perspective, to understand the sovereignty of God and his hand of providence, puts us in a situation that we're able to trust the Lord in the midst of these difficult times, knowing that he may be using them for his glory or for the advancement of the gospel of other people. Folks, we never know how God may use our sufferings. And the other one is this, where we are is no accident. See, Paul is in prison because that's where God put him. See, confidence in God's providence gives us a different perspective. As much as it's painful, as much as it may bring questions, we have to trust that God is in complete control. So when we find ourselves in circumstances that are not ideal through no fault of our own, and even at times through fault of our own, we have to see that this situation that we find ourselves in is no accident. Which opens our eyes and gives us a different perspective to see the gospel opportunity where we find ourselves. See, what we see here in verse 12, straight away, is that Paul, in the midst of a difficult situation, is filled with joy because what is happening to him is serving to advance the gospel and he wants others to know about it. He has a joy in the advancement of the gospel. Number two, he has joy because people are hearing the gospel. Verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul unpacks, look, let me show you what this advancement of the gospel is, that this, the whole imperial guard and he, all those who work with him know that I, he is in prison. Now, Paul was full of joy that the way the gospel had advanced was through the whole imperial guard. Now, the whole imperial guard was about 9,000 elite band of soldiers, 9,000 men. And all the rest would have been the admin staff and all the people engaging. And Paul was buzzing. He was full of joy because every single one of those people knew that he was in prison for preaching Christ. See, Paul was full of joy because he had a captive audience. They couldn't get away from him. The guard that was chained to him all day. And when he come off his shift, the other guard that would have been chained to him. The guys who were bringing the food those that were dealing with the paperwork, those who were engaged in conversation with him, those who were just passing by. Paul had a captive audience and every single one of them come to learn and come to know that the reason why he was in prison was because he preached Christ. 
when I used to be a police officer, there were times where we used to have to sit by cells of people. We had to watch them for, for a number of different, different reasons. We had to stay with them. And sometimes you'd watch a prisoner and they'd be quiet, they'd be asleep, they didn't want to engage with you. But sometimes it was a captive audience for somebody that more often than not was very lonely. And then they want to talk to you and they want to tell you about their life and they want to tell you about, about what was going on. And then the conversation would develop where you would be like, well, why are you in here? What have you done? And there were, I remember one occasion I'd be sitting in the main bride, well, it's closed now, up in Cheapside at the, in the business end of the, the city centre. It was a, a horrendous place. In fact, it was likened to a Napoleon jail. That's how sort of bad it was as a, as a sort of uh, a custody suite. It's closed down. I think it's a hotel now. And I was sitting there talking to a guy, and he started chatting to me, I started chatting to him. And the conversation developed, he started talking about his life, I asked him while, while he was in there, it was a drug-related offence. But then as the conversation continued, he started talking about his childhood. He started talking about Sunday school, he started talking about going to church. I told him I was a Christian, we engaged, we actually knew people together, and it was an opportunity for me to preach and an opportunity for me to share the gospel with him. He had a captive audience with me to tell me about his life, but I also had a captive audience with him to tell him about the wonder of the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, Paul had a captive audience. See, the gospel was on his lips. It was the forefront of his mind both with the believers, because he was telling those in Philippi, and we'll see later on the people were filled with confidence because of what was happening to him, but also non-believers. Any opportunity Paul had, he was talking about the gospel. He was talking about Jesus. Folks, gospel talked. Gospel talk is shaped it's shaped and happens if the gospel is a priority in our lives. And Paul had the gospel as a priority that gave him different eyes in the midst of his circumstances and gave him a different conversation when giving, given the opportunity. He was going to speak to those people about Jesus every opportunity that he was going to get. See, Paul here is in prison but he's full of joy because in prison he's able to talk about Jesus and the gospel and see the gospel spread through a group of people that he probably thought would never be reached just by walking around the streets. He was reaching the imperial guard of the Roman Empire and he was full of joy that those men, those people were hearing about Jesus. Folks, my question, do you get a joy from people hearing about the gospel. Do you get a joy? Do you get a joy from wanting to talk about the gospel? Another way of putting it, do you gossip the gospel? Is it on your lips? Is it the forefront of your mind? Because if it is, whatever circumstances that you will find yourself in, that's what you will be talking about. That's what you will be thinking through. That is the perspective by which we will walk through any circumstances. Do you gossip the gospel? Now, can I remind you from last week, when we talked about this partnership that Christians have in the gospel, this koinonia, that it's based on, on gospel friendship and, and, and gospel mission. So our gospel friendships are defined by the gospel. It is the gospel that, that, that we have this 
um, communion around the wonderful news of Jesus that he saved us. We have the same saviour, we're headed to the same place. The gospel is our you too moment. You too, you, you know him too. And because of that, we have this deep communion in the gospel. That's true for all of us as Christians. Do you agree? So then ask yourself, what dominates the conversations I have with my Christian friends? Is it the gospel? Or is it work? Is it the footy? Is it the kids? Is it church stuff? And folks, even when we talk about those things, are we thinking about how the gospel speaks into those situations? Are we gossiping the gospel? See, folks, I think having the right perspective in our circumstances, a confidence in God's providence, and gospel reflex is connected to gospel in the gospel in every circumstance and every opportunity. See, Paul had his eyes open to the gospel opportunity rather than his suffering. And he saw not those who were trying to imprison him, he saw a captive audience that needed to hear about Jesus. Now, folks, let me clarify that having our eyes open to gospel opportunity to talk about Jesus isn't about ignoring the reality of our circumstances. It's not about let's ignore what's actually going on in my life. Let's ignore what's going on in the lives of others. Let's ignore what's going on in the situation that we find ourselves and put on an alpha course or put on a, 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 a two ways to live course or, or create an event because that's the gospel opportunity that we've got to take. No. See, gospel opportunities more often than not occur because Christians in their circumstances are walking through them with gospel truth being their comfort, which they will talk about naturally. Folks, I've seen it. Folks, I've seen it in my own family. I've seen it with my own wife who will talk to her friends and I've talked to her non-Christian friends saying that she's, they're not praying enough and she's not engaged with enough. She's not trusting God enough to non-Christians. And then in a conversation with one lady, she turns around and says, I wish I had a relationship with God like you. That lady now knows Jesus and comes to Cornerstone Church. It was dealing with the reality of a situation with gospel eyes that provoked conversation. Folks, imagine, imagine Paul in prison as the guards are chatting to him and the guards say, what are you in here for, mate? And he says, I'm in here because I tell people about Jesus. You what? Yeah, yeah, I'm in here because I tell people about Jesus. The, the guy who died 30 years ago, we crucified. The, the Romans killed. He's not dead, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you mean he's not dead? No, he's not dead. I met him. You, what do you mean you met him? Yeah, I met him. To be honest with you, he did me in a little bit, but he gave me a job to do. And before that, I was somebody that didn't, didn't like him at all. But let, let me tell you about him. Let me tell you what he's done. Man, this is crazy. This is, this is, man. Hey, hey, Pontius, come over here. We, we only call him Pontius because that's not his real name. He just likes to wash his hands a lot. But Pontius, Pontius, come over here. Come over here. Come and listen to what this fella has to say. Folks, live in the reality of your situations through a gospel lens and a gospel perspective with a confidence in the providence of God causes the gospel to be something that we talk about naturally with our Christian friends and with our non-Christian friends. And folks, for those who don't know Jesus, it brings, it brings an intrigue and they want to know more. See, talking about trusting God and his promises, talking about the power of prayer and the comfort of knowing that God is sovereign and that Jesus loves us, 
creates intrigue, creates opportunity. They're actually facing the reality of our life and the brokenness of our life, like all our friends who don't know Jesus are also experiencing. Actually, to do that with a gospel perspective presents the hope and the joy that we have that they don't have, that gives us great opportunity to share the gospel. Folks, gospel people talk about the gospel because the gospel of Jesus defines and shapes them. So therefore, our gospel talk becomes normal. It becomes normal. If we gossip the gospel in the context of normal life with Christians, we will chat about the gospel more with those who aren't. So do you get the joy in knowing that people are hearing the gospel? Are you talking about the gospel with each other in the context of gospel friendships? Are you sharing the gospel with non-Christians in the everyday of our lives? Who is your captive audience? What is your captive audience? Folks, perhaps our failure to talk about the gospel to unbelievers is tied up in the lack of talking the gospel to anyone else. Talking the gospel to yourself and talking and gossiping the gospel with each other as Christians. Folks, the Apostle Paul, when he writes to the church in Corinth, says this. I spoke to you about the gospel because the gospel is the most important thing. Folks, if we are Christians, the gospel is the most important thing. The truth and the message of the Lord Jesus Christ is the most important thing because it defines who we are. So therefore, in the friendships that we have with people who know the same, that should be the thing that dominates our conversation. And even in the midst of talking about other things, it should be the gospel that we're trying to bring to bear in the midst of those situations. And folks, when that becomes natural, it becomes natural to talk about the most important thing in the context of our lives, but also presenting that to others who we know need it so desperately. And folks, when we do that, when we experience that, and when we see people who we've done life with and engaged with, who have not known Jesus, who now know Jesus, wow, that brings a joy that surpasses any words that I can give. Folks, he found a joy because people were hearing the gospel. Number three, he found a joy because people were proclaiming the gospel, verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul is full of joy because there has been an increasing of confidence and boldness and fearlessness amongst Christians in their preaching of the gospel because of his imprisonment. What is happening here? Surely, seeing that Paul had been arrested by the Romans and that he was under arrest and it was the imperial guard that were guarding him, surely that would have put them off. Now folks, as Christians, we need to be reminded that our stories are to be a reflection of Jesus' story and his story defines us. And it was the Lord Jesus who said, whoever would come after me must take up his cross and follow me. Now, folks, let me remind you that the cross was a symbol of suffering. The cross was the symbol of opposition. Yes, we can look at the cross now to see that it was on the cross that Christ died for us in order to atone, to pay 
for our sin, to pay for the punishment that we deserve for our sin and we can walk free. And it is a wonderful, wonderful thing to see a cross and to see an empty cross knowing that he died, but yes, rose again. He is no longer on that cross. He is no longer in the grave. He is alive forevermore, the right hand of the Father. But a cross was a symbol of suffering. And Jesus says, if you're gonna follow me, you need to take up your cross and follow me. Jesus was saying, Following me is not going to be any walk in the park. Following me is going to bring suffering. My story will define your story as a follower of me. Now, later on in the letter, we'll see the Paul's heart is to know him, is to know Jesus, but also to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. And he says the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. That's what Paul says. Now we're gonna look at that in a few months time, a couple of months time. But this power of the resurrection is made known as we share the same kind of sufferings Jesus faced. The sufferings that come for faithful witness in a fallen world. The good news is that those who suffer with and for Christ will attain the resurrection from the dead even as he did. So, so we'll unpack it more in a few months, but Paul is saying, I want to know the, the, the resurrection and I actually want to share in the fellowship of his sufferings because it's through these sufferings that I will experience this resurrection. See, Paul was in prison and Paul was suffering for faithful witness and those who saw and had any contact with him could see the joy that he was getting because of the gospel advancement and the opportunity that he had. They could see that there was life coming from this suffering. This joy, folks, an example, increased confidence. But that confidence wasn't in Paul. That confidence, you see there, was in the Lord. See, the mindset of those who were growing in confidence would have been, if God provides for Paul in that circumstance, then he can and will surely provide for me in my circumstances whilst I walk free in Rome, whilst I walk free in Philippi. See, Paul's example brought a confidence in the Lord that increased boldness and fearlessness in preaching the gospel. Now, folks, after Jim Elliot died in 1956 and his companions. A number of years later, Jim's wife and other family members returned back to the tribe to share the gospel. And this time, they were successful. Many people from the tribe came to know Jesus, including a number of the men who actually killed Jim Elliot and his companions. In fact, some of those men actually became elders of the church. Some of those men actually became church planters and took the good news of Jesus to other tribes in the jungles in Ecuador. And it's also been recorded that after Jim Elliot and his companions died, there was a, an increase of students from Wheaton College volunteering to want to be sent out into the mission field to tell people about Jesus. Folks, Paul here, is full of joy and he wants the church in Philippi to know that his imprisonment has brought a liberty to others that enables them to share the gospel. See, Paul used his chains to proclaim Christ to, other, to others. And when other people saw it, other people were liberated 
in their freedom to proclaim the gospel. Folks, I don't know about you, after watching that video of that dear lady from North Korea, that even after all that she'd gone through, and even being in a concentration camp for being a Christian, what does she do? Her and others have a secret Bible study. They tell people about Jesus. Folks, that is not our experience. And I pray that that will never be our experience. But in the midst of her being in chains and Paul being in chains, proclaiming the gospel, she'll bring a confidence in God that if he can provide for them in that circumstance to proclaim the gospel, he can surely provide for us in our circumstances to proclaim the gospel. Folks, here what we see in Philippians is the life of a man in chains influences those who had freedom to be bold and fearless. Folks, our confidence is not found in another person. Our confidence in proclaiming the gospel comes from the Lord. Look what he's done for them. He can surely do that for me. Our boldness to proclaim the gospel comes from the Lord. We see that in the book of Acts. is as they're in the room right at the beginning of the book of Acts and the, there's fear and they're praying for boldness. The Holy Spirit comes, fills them and then they begin to proclaim in the midst of opposition. Folks, maybe we need to start praying that the Holy Spirit fills us with that boldness, that we have that confidence in the Lord that we know is there because we see it in the lives of others and he tells us himself that he will give us that. See, what happened in this situation, folks, when Paul finds himself in prison, that others outside come to realize and come to know that when the danger of speaking for Christ increased beyond their worst nightmares, their boldness increased beyond measure. Corrie ten Boom was a, a, a Dutch lady, and during the Second World War, her and her, her sister and her father actually spent a number of years hiding Jews in their home uh, to, 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 to keep them safe from the Nazi soldiers during the time of the Holocaust. And you can read her story. Uh, she ended up in a, being arrested and ended up being in a concentration camp. And you can read her story in, in two books, one of them called The Hiding Place and the other one called The Tramp for the Lord. But Corrie ten Boom, who was serving God's people in the midst of a horrendous situ situation, was trying to protect those who were being wrongly, wrongly um, arrested and obviously killed because they were Jewish people gets arrested for help and then finds herself in a concentration camp and she says this, you can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. You can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. Folks, we need to see that Christ is all we have. See, the proclamation of the gospel will bring opposition. And folks, as Christians in our context, in our culture, we are increasingly going to be on the wrong side of history as far as our liberal culture is concerned. And we have nothing that can soften that blow for us. That we have nothing can, that can instill confidence and boldness and fearlessness other than the Lord Jesus Christ. 
other than our Saviour who said that I will be with you always in every circumstance. Folks, if Christ provided for Paul, for Corrie ten Boom, for Wernbrandt, for Elizabeth, Eli- uh, Elizabeth Elliot and, a, and, a, and, a, and other family members, if God can provide for Hey Wu and for the millions of persecuted Christians in their circumstances, then he can and he will surely provide for us in ours so that we can proclaim the gospel. Folks, what joy it is to know that the gospel is proclaimed and being proclaimed in the most difficult of circumstances. Oh, that we could share in that love. Oh, that we could share in those sufferings for the cause of Christ. Oh, that the Holy Spirit will shake us up to see that the worst that, the worst that can happen to us in our context is that we may upset people, that we may be called names. That we may, we may be cancelled on social media. We may even lose our jobs. Oh, that we know the suffering of sharing the gospel far outweighs any discomfort we may have for doing the most important thing. Oh, that God would shake us in our context. Shake us in our lives. Folks, do we need to pray that God would shake us? Should our prayers go from being, please deliver us out of this situation, to prayers that are saying, Lord, please increase our confidence, our boldness, and our fearlessness in this situation. Folks, do we need to pray for boldness? Or have we just swallowed the pill of our culture to go, well, that's not who I am. That's not the gift that I've been given. That's not the calling that I have. Yes, we all have a calling to be witnesses for Jesus in every circumstances. Do we need to pray for boldness? Folks, let us look to Jesus. Let us look to Paul. Let us look to the the wonderful, wonderful examples of people who've had their lives defined by the story of Christ and have been bold in brutal circumstances in their witness of him. See, Paul was full of joy and he wanted them to know about that joy because people and even more people were now proclaiming the gospel because he had been put in prison. And number four, joy, because it's about Christ's glory, not his own. Verses 15 to 18. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. What I love about Paul's letters, and it's no different here, is that he is brutally honest about reality. And in this case, he's brutally honest about the reality of false motives of some of those who are preaching the gospel. See, even in the midst of this joy, there is brokenness. Brokenness amongst those who are proclaiming and preaching the gospel. 
Paul says there are people reaching, preaching the gospel, proclaiming the good news of Jesus with very wrong motives. See, we see there that the, Paul says there are two, two groups of people who are preaching. There are those who are preaching the gospel from a goodwill, and that there are those who are preaching out of envy and rivalry, verse 15. See, those who are doing it from goodwill are doing it out of the love, knowing that Paul has been put in prison for the defense of the gospel. They were probably those who, were, who had been growing in confidence and boldness and fearlessness. But he also tells them that there are those who are doing it out of jealousy, envy and rivalry, and they are doing it for selfish ambition. And they are wanting to inflict Paul whilst in prison. They're wanting to make the situation worse, worse for Paul whilst he's in prison. Clearly, folks, Paul must have been made aware of things. He, he, he clearly was aware of what was being said and, and about him and, and implied about him by others. See, he would have been aware that some were jealous of his ministry. They would have been, he would have been aware that others were jealous of the influence that God had given him and the opportunities that God had given him. And they were taking this opportunity whilst he was in prison to seek to bring him down, whilst also trying to build themselves up and their own ministries up. And Paul being in prison was a great opportunity for them to do this. Now, folks, it's interesting, isn't it, when you look at this, is that Paul isn't saying that these two groups of people are preaching different gospels. Notice verse 15, they're preaching Christ. So Paul is talking about two groups of people preaching the same gospel, but from very different motives. Very different motives. Now, folks, in light of this, there are a few things that I want us to consider. First is this, it is possible to do something good with motives that are wrong. We could be sharing the gospel, we could be caring for those in need, we could be leading a gospel community, we could be serving the church, we could be leading the church, we could be preaching to the church, but we could be doing it from a heart of selfish ambition, a heart of envy, and a heart of rivalry. Ask yourself some questions. When others serve the Lord in a similar way to you, where does your heart go? When somebody else is doing something that you also do, and it just happens to be their week, where does your heart go? Do you rejoice or are you envious? When others struggle or make a mistake, whether that's in serving or just whether that is in life, even if they fail, where does your heart go? Or when you do something for Jesus and you don't get the thanks or the encouragement or the affirmation you think you deserve, where does your heart go? Folks, it is possible to do something good with motives that are wrong. So as saved sinners, we are to check our motives. Another thing I'd love us to consider in light of this is that we are to be aware of jealousy and envy in ministry. It's interesting, Paul says both these people are preaching the gospel. My assumption is that these people are Christians. Or at least they're proclaiming the Christian message. That, that is us, we're Christians, we, we proclaim the Christian message. So 
in light of this, I want us to consider that we can fall into the trap of being people who are jealous and envious of others in ministry. Beware of it. See, if Satan can't corrupt our hearts with power or the love of money or with sex, this is the area where he may do it. Bringing a jealousy and an enviousness in our hearts. Folks, the other thing is this, we need to be aware of the temptation to promote ourselves in ministry. See, Paul said those who were preaching were preaching from bad motives. And they were preaching out of jealousy and rivalry and for selfish ambition, verse 17. See, Paul does deal with this. Later on in chapter 2, Paul calls the church to do nothing from selfish ambition. Why? Because this is a great temptation for us all. It's a great temptation for those in leadership, but it is also a great temptation for everybody. Folks, we can promote ourselves in general conversation. We can promote ourselves in a gospel community Bible study. Folks, we can promote ourselves in, 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 in the sense of ministry and what we do for God in, in the context of social media. Folks, we can be quick to tell other people about what we are doing for God, what we are doing for others. We need to check our hearts and our motives. And ask, why am I sharing this? Why am I doing this? Folks, if it's to make much of Jesus, and if it's for, the good, for his glory and to build up others, I want to encourage you, share away. But if it's to build up yourself, I want to encourage you, remain quiet and repent. But this not only can be done by individuals, it also can be done by churches. Folks, we can find ourselves peeking over the fence of other churches and seeing what other churches are doing or, or, or not doing. And we can become proud or we can become jealous and envious. And as a result, we can start promoting our church in the spirit of competition with other churches. Folks, when other churches are planted in our area or in our, in our city, what goes on in our hearts? Are we thankful that the gospel is being proclaimed to the thousands of people that don't know Jesus, even in this community? Or are we filled with a sense of enviousness and rivalry and therefore fall into a default of self-ambition for us and for our church? What goes on in our hearts when other churches grow when ours doesn't? What goes on in our hearts when other churches struggle when ours doesn't? Folks, how sad it is to compete with others who are actually on the same team. How sad it is when we serve with selfish ambition while the hearts while the heart of our message is about a saviour who emptied himself for sinners. In this particular case, it is Paul and his situation that has highlighted the clear jealousy that others had for Paul and his gospel influence. See, these people were preaching the gospel, but also taking every opportunity to bring Paul down and to criticise his ministry. How would you respond how does Paul respond? See, Paul doesn't try and defend himself. He doesn't then go on and pick holes in their ministries. No, he leaves their motives to God. 
that even though they do it from wrong motives and with the appearance of love and truthful hearts, Paul is saying they are still preaching the gospel. Christ is still being proclaimed, verse 18, and in that I rejoice. In that I rejoice. Now, folks, I want to make it clear. Paul isn't excusing a false gospel. He's not excusing a false gospel. Paul is very clear about that. He will touch on that in chapter 3, but he comes down hard on it in his letters to the churches in Galatia. He, in fact, says, if anybody preaches a false gospel, let him be accursed. See, the issue here in Philippians, in this part of the letter, is an issue of the motives of the human heart. They're preaching the gospel, but they're preaching it from a wrong motive. And the issues of the human heart are for God to deal with. It is Him who deals with our heart. And folks, our hearts, we are so deceitful that we can have, even have our hearts full of pride, envy, selfish ambition, and still preach the gospel, and still share the gospel, and still care for other people with a deceitful heart that is busted up and broken with this pride, envy, and selfish ambition. And the amazing thing is, God still uses it. He still uses it. Folks, because the power is not in the person, the power is in the message and the power of the Spirit. See, Paul doesn't care about what they are saying about him. No. He doesn't care about what they're doing against him. He doesn't care about his reputation. All he cares about is that Christ is being proclaimed. God will deal with the motives of the heart of those preaching. Paul just says, I'm rejoicing in that people are hearing about Jesus. Now, hear me, that doesn't mean that in the right context, given the right opportunity, Paul would, would, would not have addressed this group and challenged them. He may have done. But the issue is this, his primary concern was for the glory of God, not the glory of himself. Folks, the wrong motives of others must never be allowed to become the determining factor in our attitudes. Let me say that again. The wrong motives of others must never be allowed to become the determining factor in our attitudes. Because this will rob us of the joy of Christ being proclaimed. And we'll find ourselves becoming the motive, please. We'll find ourselves criticizing, constantly criticizing and questioning people's motives all the time. Especially leaders and especially those who are preaching the gospel. And folks, there is no joy when we become critical motive police. No. And there is no joy when we seek our own glory. But there is lasting joy when Christ is glorified. When Christ is glorified. See folks, Paul had a joy in the midst of horrendous circumstance and he wanted the church to know, look, what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. He found joy in the fact that in his circumstances, the gospel was advancing. Is that you? And that advancement was that people that he did not expect were hearing about Jesus. And he was full of joy because they were hearing the gospel. Is that you? And not only that, his circumstance brought a 
boldness in God and a fearlessness and a confidence that actually caused other people to be willing to take gospel risk because of what God was doing in the life of Paul. If God could provide for Paul in his circumstance, he could provide for me. And Paul was joyful in the fact that that's what was happening in and through God's people because of what was happening to him. Folks, do we have that same joy? Do we respond with that same joy? And folks, are we about our own glory or are we about the glory of Christ? Because if we are about our, if we are about the glory of Christ, we will talk to people about Jesus. If we are about the glory of Christ, we will seek to have a gospel perspective in all our circumstances. Folks, if we have a glory about Christ, we will seek to build others up and actually be slow to build ourselves up in front of other people. Folks, do you have a joy because of gospel advancement? Do you have a joy because of people who are hearing the gospel? Do you have a joy because people are proclaiming the gospel? Do you have a joy because it's about Christ's glory, not his own? Not your own. How do we have joy in our circumstances? We keep our focus on Jesus and put the gospel first. Then what we see and what we experience will be joy. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that you are overall that you are sovereign and that you work your hand of providence for your glory and for our good. Give us gospel eyes, give us gospel perspectives as we live through this life, experiencing suffering and opposition for the cause of Christ. Give us eyes that see the gospel and put Jesus first that give us a joy. Increase our confidence, increase our boldness, increase our fearlessness in the midst of a culture that is pushing the gospel message to the margins. Help us to follow in the example of many who have gone before, but more importantly, help us to recognize that our lives and our mission are defined by Jesus and who he is and his example. Jesus, it's all about you. It's all about your glory. Help us have that at the forefront of our minds as individuals and as a church. And Lord, we wanna pray for the gospel churches of our city, of our area. We want to pray, Lord, that they will grow. We want to pray, Lord, that many people will come to know you. We want to celebrate, Lord. We want to celebrate what you're doing in, in other people's churches. Help us never to be divisive. Help us never to seek our own, our, our own kingdom and build ourselves up and, and live for any selfish ambition. Help us not be in competition with people who are on the same team. Help us to live out the message and empty ourselves for the sake of others coming to know you. And if that happens in the churches down the road, Praise be to God. Help us to be those people. Be with us this week. Bless us this week. And I pray that you would receive all the glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.